Hello and welcome to episode two of the Total Guitar Podcast. And if you missed episode one, you're about to hear a monthly show dedicated to talking about guitar. We'll also be talking about what Total Guitar magazine is covering in the new issue. You'll be able to hear exclusive clips of artists and gear demos. I'm Rob Lang, Total Guitar's content editor. I'm Stuart Williams, editor of Total Guitar. Chris Bird, tuition editor. Uh, Mike Astley Brown, content manager for guitars on Music Radar. Okay, first of all, um, we'd just like to thank everyone for tuning into the first episode of the podcast and um, taking us to number four in the uh, UK iTunes music charts. Is that right? That's right. Number four. Above Graham Norton (laughs) and Annie Mack. Yeah, so yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you for your support, everyone. Um, Not George Ezra. And uh, yeah. And they gave us the second episode. So uh, here we are. And uh, we've got a lot more to pack into the show this time. Um, we've got demos of two of the most exciting new amps in the world right now. Uh, the Marshall Origin and the PRS Tremonti MT-15 coming up. We've got interviews with Deep Purple, Flying Colours and Dixie Dregs, Maverick, Steve Morse. We've got Milk Teeth and Fan Club um, talking about the challenges facing young guitar bands t- today. And we've also got Lamb of God's Willie Adler on going back to his roots with the band on their new album. We're also going to be revealing the true secret of a great live tone. And we'll be looking at the new issue of Total Guitar that's on sale right now. And that's all about expanding your playing. And who doesn't want to do that? First up, let's talk about what's been going on in the world of guitar. Lindsay Buckingham has parted ways with Fleetwood Mac. And uh, that's a bit of a shocker. So about 40 odd years he's been since the lineup start. He he left in the eighties in the for and was mm. replaced by two guys. So, and then he came back for their reunion with Stevie Nicks. But it's a bit of a surprise this, um, and he's been replaced by Mike Campbell, um, uh, Tom Betty and the Heartbreakers, and also Crowded House's Neil Finn. So, whenever he leaves, it it takes two two players to two to re- tango in the night. Re- <laughs> <laughs> so First gag. Yes. Yeah, first gag registered. It's 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 quite an interesting proposition. Who's who's replaced him? I, I don't know what falling out they've had. They've got a tour in the autumn, I believe. So we should probably just say we don't know they have fallen out, do we? Really? Yeah. Well, we 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 don't know. Probably some reports so. some some reports are saying that he was fired, but the official yes. statement didn't kind of give off that vibe to me. They just sort of drifted apart. But it. The whole thing got me thinking about when is a band not a band in a sense, when some people would not accept Fleetwood Mac without Lindsay Buckingham, or maybe some people don't accept Fleetwood Mac without Peter Green and that whole early lineup of the, the blues lineup. Incidentally, we've tabbed uh, Albatross in the new issue, I should add. And it got not so much Fleetwood Mac, but it got me thinking about other bands that are touring without, with few original members. Um, the obvious one would be ACDC. I think Angus is the only original member. Yeah, classic line now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you, to a less, much lesser extent, you've got Blink One Eight Two. Matt Skiba replaced Tom DeLonge. I think it's different when 
Is it Tom DeLonge or is it Tom DeLong? It's Tom DeLong. It's Tom DeLong. It's Tom DeLong. I don't think he is French. Do you guys have it, uh, an issue? Where's the line on these things? If, if the band still sounds good and ACDC, by all accounts, do with Axl Rose, is, is it a problem? No, I think it's always going to be sort of slightly difficult, isn't it? When the main voice of a band leaves, it changes it and... You know, I guess there's a period of where, where you just have to kind of adjust to it or just not. You don't have to like it, do you? Um, I think the trouble with big bands is they're, they're a business and if there's demand for that business, then the show must go on in their eyes, no matter what some fans might think. I think some bands would have problems. You can't have Metallica without Hetfield. Uh, you can't have... Well, you can have Steely Dan with just... Steely Dawn, apparently. So uh, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you had Sabbath without Ozzy for a period of time, of course. Indeed, quite. A, but they quite had a, a hell of a replacement then, didn't they? Yeah, true. Is it is One it a case things. of is it a case of the right member? Mm. You can you can pull it off. Well, yeah, I think if it's a distinct era of the band coming in, do uh, you guys enjoyed the Blink One Eight Two album? Um, yeah, with with Matt Skiba. Yeah. The Malpline Trio. It's not like they just plucked someone from obscurity and got someone no. who sounds like DeLong. It's you know. Mm. Matt Skiba is someone who kind of toured with them with um, Alkaline Trio and stuff and they you know they came up together so uh, like it's a good fit I think you know I think mm. <clears throat> it's when it's when it looks kind of contrived or weird that you know people get something that just isn't a fit just to keep the machine going it, that's like, when people have a real problem like some of the faces played with Mick Hucknall <laughs> that was a bit weird wasn't it good singer though Mick Hucknall can't knock it. Good uh, singer, good voice. can you? And of course, the Smashing Pumpkins as well. Ah, yes. Big controversy over um, Darcy Retsky's uh, involvement. Or lack of it. Well, indeed. I mean, there's sort of a Team Billy, Team Darcy dynamic going on in the, in the uh, fandom right now. Do you think that it's kind of soured the reunion on that, on that front? Oh, there are rumours of ticket sales not being quite as good as expected. So... I think for some fans, it certainly has. Do you think that's because she's not in it, or is it because of what's come to light, allegedly, about how he's how he reacted and how he cut her out of that? I think there's definitely a bit of both, but um, in all the interviews and comments, or Darcy's left, there's not much talk about what she's been up to musically in the past. Sort of, how long has it been now? 10, 15, yeah. 15 years, and all that. Um, so I, I think it's a similar case as when. When Black Sabbath uh, didn't tour with Bill Ward, and they said they think he wasn't physically up to doing a full like world tour, I think Billy Corgan had a bit of an inkling that he didn't feel confident that Darcy yeah. could perform to the standards that he wanted to perform at. Whereas James E. Hart and obviously Jimmy Chamberlain have been active since. She mm. wasn't, but he handled it in a way that was pretty controversial. When you see the the text mm. and the. Mm. emails and things so I get I get his point but you know had I been the leader of Smashing Pumpkins maybe I would have handled it differently but uh, One day I haven't written be. those songs <laughs> and I never will <laughs> One band who may not have their original original lineup, but have stayed together with the same same guys for a number of years now is Lamb of God and uh, we talked to their guitarist Willie Adler about the surprising news that they've revived their original name, Burn the Priest, for their 20th anniversary. 
with a covers album called Legion XX, so Legion 20. And uh, it sees them returning to their early influences with uh, SOD, Quicksand, Bad Brains and Melvin covers. And uh, one of our writers, Adam Reese, who's a bit of a metal guru, I think we could describe him. Uh, he also writes a metal hammer. Uh, he talked to Willie about his uh, early days as a player and, and, the ex- and the experience of recording this album. And because Lamb of God can be quite tense in the creative process from, from talking to them in the past. And he talked to Willie about what it was like to make this album and also who Willie's early influences were as a player. Um, it was, honestly, it was a lot of fun, man. It was, in, in a way, the, the pressure that, you know, I usually feel but when I'm writing Lamb of God stuff or recording Lamb of God stuff wasn't really there. It was, there was a lot more fun, not to say that it's not fun, you know, recording a record. I mean, I love doing that. But there was a lot of, with this particular project, there, it was more fun. You know, it was like, learn the riffs, see, you know, what, you know, we can do to, to kind of make it our own and, and add some flavor to it. But it was, it was more just, let's just have fun with this and not really, you know, strain ourselves to, to, to make sure that it's, you know, um, Lamb of God quality, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to to Mark and and Randy before about the writing process, and it it sounds like I mean, uh, you have to kind of go through quite a lot, and you're very kind of uh, all of you like perfectionists in the band trying to get things out. So I guess those pressures were obviously taken off. Yeah, no, that's pretty much exactly what I mean. Just yeah. you know, these we grew up loving these songs, and then when the idea came around, it was. Basically, just you know, let's just have fun with it. Let's kind of add some flavor to it, and and uh, yeah, it was the, that pressure that is normally there was not there. Christoph, I mean, you, you talk about adding these new flavors. I mean, did uh, recording some of these songs throw up some unexpected challenges you weren't you didn't think about? Yeah, um, particularly the big black song "Kerosene." Yeah, that was never really like a, a hard rock or, or metal tune it was more kind of industrial noise type song so you know i had to actually write um some riffs that you know stayed true to what the original song was but in a way was able to be interpreted on a guitar and as a metal guitar player and as a, an album under the lamb of god burn the priest name so that that song in particular definitely sticks out as one that <laughs> had to be a little creative with but it was a lot of fun like i said yeah um so uh talking about the um you know being a being a metal guitar player and the fact that obviously a lot of these songs are are more punk based and and the big black one for example is a you know real industrial noisy track i mean who were the players that kind of inspired you the most early on um it it really depends man I i mean when it comes to metal it was Kirk and James had a huge impact on me when Kill 'Em All came out. I mean, that was, they were definitely the first guys doing that sort of thing or the first guys that I had heard. I remember getting that on a cassette, the Kill 'Em All tape and just being blown away. And that was kind of what steered me into that, into really, you know, focusing on metal. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, all the early Bay Area thrash dudes really kind of influenced me and and, and the direction I took. Cool. I mean, you've, you've also got, I mean, you've definitely got your own, like, style as a player, and did you always, like, embrace finding your own way as a guitarist as well as taking on these influences from, like, the thrash Bay Area? I didn't know any better, man. It was just, <laughs> you know, when I picked up a Honestly, when I picked up a guitar, it just felt natural to me, and I, I wanted to play it. So I just, you know, taught myself to play it and to, to play the things that I wanted to hear. It, it never occurred to me that there was a quote-unquote right way or wrong way to do any of it. It was, it was just enjoy it and, and play music and, and, and have fun. So, yeah, I didn't know any better. I didn't, I didn't know to learn anything of a particular way. So I guess my style and, and how I play developed strictly out of me just, just wanting to play what I wanted to hear. That was Willie Adler talking to us there about the uh, new Burn the Priest stroke Lamb of God covers album, Legion XX or Legion 20, that will be out on the 18th of May. One of the influences Willie Adler spoke about there was James Hetfield, and I think that applies to a lot of metal players. And uh, that, that leads us to some other news um, relating to Hetfield. He's, he's had a very unusual guitar built, hasn't he, Mike? He has. Yes, it's an Explorer style built by Ken Lawrence, uh, and it's called Carl, and it's named after the Carlson uh, Boulevard, uh, which is the where the garage is, where Metallica wrote Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. So obviously, it has huge uh, sentimental value for the uh, for the band uh, and for metal lovers everywhere. It, it's actually made out of pieces of the garage. Is that right? Were they practicing? Yeah, that's true. Um, the garage was knocked down. And the band actually went to visit the house where they, uh, I think they lived there at one stage. It was like their HQ, yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, it turned out the garage had been knocked down. Lars was furious. Uh, <laughs> they want, didn't they? They wanted to move the garage into their new HQ. That was the original like, plan, yeah. The garage. Yeah, pretty much move it piece by piece. Um, and if that results in another Master of Puppets, that would have been great. But uh, <laughs> Why didn't they just buy another garage? I mean, they good point. They could afford it. <laughs> so one of, of Hetfield's friends. Uh, managed to salvage some of the wood before it was all yeah, he had, taken away. Yeah, he had eight pieces of wood. Uh, he gave it to Hetfield, and Hetfield thought, hmm, I know someone who can make a guitar out of this. Uh, Pass it to Ken Lawrence, who's been making Explorer-style um, guitars for Hetfield for quite a while now, at least a decade or so. Uh, and he's put together this uh, incredible-looking piece. Um, it's got, like, inlays which tell the story of, of Metallica during that period, and a little tribute to Cliff on there. Yeah, there is. Um, and it's got nails from the, the garage as well. It's Very got, cool. Yeah. It's got a... It's not completely made out of the uh, piece of the garage, is it? It's, it's got, just a top. It's just the yeah, top, yeah, yeah. The back is ma- mahogany. references of mahogany. Yeah. And uh, mahogany back and an ebony... Ebony fretboard, yeah. Ebony fretboard, yeah. You know what it's got on the back as well, don't you? Magnetic flap. Flap magnetic. Yes, yeah. very good, yeah. very good. Easy access because obviously Hetfield uses active EMG pickups. Yeah, easy access for the uh, the old nine volt yeah. or two. He's got his own signature set. That's right. Does he yeah. use two? Does he use the, the eighteen volt thing? I wish I checked. He this does. Now. There were two batteries. It, there were. I thought. I, I thought there were. Yeah. Don't, don't quote me on that. That's what I believe I saw. Well, if you <laughs> saw it as well, we saw yeah. the video independently. Yeah. And we both remember I, there being two batteries in there. Uh, unfortunately, Maybe just keep the spare in there. 
I'd really I would have thought you'd have like the, the EMG power supply thing that you that you can't seem to get over here, but they make. <laughs> you know the thing I mean? Yeah, yeah I know yeah. the thing you mean. Power it off your board. I'd really like to see this guitar a bit closer because you, you we didn't actually get to see the inlays up close. No. Mm. It, I, I, if, if James wants to stop by, um, yeah. I'm happy to, to take a closer look. Preferably wearing that dashing cowboy hat he uh, dons for one of the scenes yes. in the video and then not for the rest of it. Yeah, That'd be great. a bit strange yeah. to hat pin. Yeah, it's cool. I wonder why he didn't ask ESP to do anything with it. Well, I think Ken, uh, I believe that all the guitars he uses for clean work are, are built by Ken. I never asked him about Ken. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't know why. Time was limited. But yeah, Hetfield does use um, use Ken Lawrence guitars for the cleaner stuff, so like one and uh, nothing else matters. He just prefers the tone from that, running into a... Roland JC one twenty. Is he still using that, or do you think he uses a Kemper for for the Roland? That's a very good question. We just don't know. We just don't know under the stage, out of sight. Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. James, call it. Call in. So let's talk about the new issue of Total Guitar next. We've got over forty ways to expand your playing with um, chords, scales, tricks, and uh, for seven essential guitar styles. There's quite a lot in there. So, Chris, do you want to talk us through this? Yeah, so we've called it expand your playing, and I think I think that's kind of kind of right for the for the features. One thing that a lot of players find is they'll they'll get to a certain level of playing. You have to get get some techniques down on a certain number of chords, and they'll be able to play their thing, and that might be a certain level of basic soloing, a certain level of being able to do rhythm. But by looking at styles of music individually, it's gonna help you as a player to start to think in more more different streams, different avenues for your playing, I would say. So we've broken up into seven different styles. Um, it's one, all quite, yeah, it's all like core guitar styles as well. It's not like we've gone crazy. In yeah, the, nothing nothing too esoteric. Um, we, we have, I suppose the most esoteric, if you like, if that's the right word, is we have done a little primer on jazz. And I think it's it's kind of the style that strikes fear in the heart of guitarists, but we've uh, <laughs> we, we've done a nice nice easy way into using um, uh, jazz chords in particular. How you can use what's known as voice leading. So where you'll you'll use one note from one chord, make a chord change, and use the note that you used before to make it sound like the two chords are related. And it's that's kind of a, that's how you get started into jazz melody and stuff. And so that it's quite quite a neat and simple. The playing example is really easy to play as well. So it, it sounds good. It sounds authentic. And it's a nice, easy way. If, you, if you'd if you like to have a go at jazz and you think you're probably not good enough, well, you probably are, in fact. It doesn't have to be too hard. Um, on a similar score, we did a similar thing with uh, with the rockabilly style as well. Something that can be really challenging. You know, if you we're not all Brian Setzer, let's face it, but you can get started. So similar cool. approach. Um, so, yeah, th- th- lots of different styles. Rock metal and inevitably blues got to be a bit of blues in there hasn't there yeah can't yeah. be a bit of blues got some funk in there as well yeah funk yeah. too absolutely i think it's just like the whole idea where it's really when we're talking about it is just to kind of help people that have hit a bit of a wall or you know feel like they're in a bit of a rut which is me most of the time and it's just way of you know different ways of kind of literally expanding your playing and getting out of the kind of same old chords and scales and playing the same old stuff. And definitely, mm. definitely. And I think people do fall back on chords and scales that they know. So it's always good. You know, if, you, if you're getting the, the mag regularly, you, we've, we've always got loads of that stuff in there just to 
point you in a new direction, something new, a little bit of inspiration every month. One thing we should point out for people that aren't familiar with the mag is that it comes with a CD every month and that accompanies the lessons in the mag. Absolutely. So the, the CD is always absolutely packed full and I actually struggle to get all the audio on there sometimes. So um, yeah, it's always packed full of playing examples and stuff. That you, so all, everything that's tabbed basically will yeah. have audio on the CD. Over 70 so minutes of, of lesson audio. Yeah, it's yeah. Pushing yeah, it to its limits. Mm. It is. But what I like about um, all these different sort of genres of uh, playing is that you can apply a lot of those concepts to your own style that you play as well. So like the jazz chords and the leading notes that made me think of Jeff Buckley, yep. who employed a lot of sort of jazz concepts, but in a more sort of singer-songwritery, alt, poppy, rocky, solely um, concept. So it was a... Uh, this kind of stuff can get you out of ruts if you're a songwriter as well, can't yeah. it? Learning a new, a little bit of a new style might lead you down a different path. Yeah. Or if you're like me and you're in the covers band and you're trying to cop every genre, yeah. then it... it <laughs> And you, you don't know what to play for like a Chuck Berry solo. Yeah. And yeah. I think Andy. You know, we've, prevented, we've presented it rather in such a way that we've given you some chords and scales for each style. And that's helpful because it sort of gives you, it sort of pigeonholes a few chords for you that you will work in a style. But you have to remember any chord, any style, there, there are no rules. So we're going to play a couple of clips from the disc. Um, uh, from the cover feature, actually, we're going to listen to to that jazz example that I was talking about, um, and why not the rockabilly one too? to the learn to play section of the Mac. What songs have we got this month? <laughs> Are you leaving that in? Leaving that in. Uh, so first up, we've got Rock School's version of Albatross. Um, as with many of the uh, Rock School songs we've been running, it's been arranged for a particular guitar grade. Uh, so the Albatross in particular has been arranged for grade two. So it's quite an easy version. Yeah. So, you know, if you've thought that's a song you'd like to learn that maybe is too hard for you, it doesn't necessarily have to be. And it's actually quite a good thing about Roxwell's syllabus. Lots of stuff that you can you know, learn regardless of how, how experienced you are as a player. And just in time for spring. It's Here Comes the Sun. <laughs> Thanks, perfect lead in there, Rob. Yeah, cheers. Um, yeah, we've done a an open mic songbook, uh, which is our format for a song sheet with the chords. Um, and we tabbed the most important bit as well. We've tabbed the intro, um, which actually gets you quite a long way through the song. Um, we've also given you all the chord shapes. I think this song is a capo song. Capo seventh fret. And so, that's George Harrison's song, of course. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the the secret weapon of the Beatles. Maybe so. The something in the way he moves around the fret. Oh. <laughs> Very good. Yes. Um, not a single laugh in the room. Well, <laughs> I was appreciating it. I'm not Some envious laugh. looks well, at that joke. Mm, there were. There were. <laughs> yeah. Listen, we do edit some things out, you know. <laughs> it, it, it really is wall-to-wall classics, this issue. We've got uh, another classic. Blue Oyster Cult, Don't Fear the Reaper. 
Needs more cowbell. I was about to say, why don't we bring a cowbell in? I haven't got one. Have you oh, got one, Stu? I've got two. You've got two? Yeah. Didn't but, bring them. No. It's a great song, though. And I think everyone knows it for that comedy skit and for the intro. Riff. That was Saturday but, Night Live, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Saturday Night Chris Live with Christopher Walken. What a brilliant skit. But um, I think people know it's that intro riff, but it's an, it's an amazing, uh, like, progressive and psychedelic rock classic that's, you know, it's brilliant. It's worth listening to the whole track. And we've tabbed it in full. And Riff of the Month. We, talk, we talked about them earlier. It's one of the greatest albums of all time. Indeed. And this one kicks it off. It's the opening riff from the opening song on uh, Back in Black. Hell's Bells. Uh, it's, a, it's a cool riff. It's just, it's the, it's the chilled arpeggio that uh, gradually builds into the, into the song. Um it is actually a two-guitar part because Malcolm joins in at the end of each phrase on the da 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 bits. Um, mm. so it's, um, but we we've tabbed um, Angus's main arpeggio. So there's a running theme of arpeggios going on here with Almost. these tracks. Almost, yeah. Arpeggios essential, an essential skill. Absolutely, and more on that next month. Oh, oh, a teaser. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the gear section, Mike. What delights do you have for us? Well, the uh, the TG test, which is where we pit uh, four guitars against each other, is uh, souped up single cuts. Ooh. So the uh, the long favoured format of uh, dual humbucking uh, instruments, rock machines, yeah, gets a gets a supercharge. Before we we list what the four guitars are, I notice there's no Gibson or Epiphone. Why is that? These are alternatives to Les Pauls. Ah, these are you know more shreddable if you. If you want to call them that, I mean, plenty of guitarists do shred on those pools, but why not? These are these are hot rodded to within an inch of their lives. So we've got the uh, Jackson Marty Friedman MF1, got uh, PRS's SE Tremonti, the new for uh, 2018 version. Uh, we've got an LTD Eclipse 401, which is a uh, very Hetfieldian in its vibe, mm-hmm. uh, and a Hagstrom Ultra Swede. Cool. Let's go through them then. So the Hagstrom's something a bit different, isn't it? For for guys that are looking for like a a single cut type thing, that one's not necessarily kind of massively hot rod in a kind of metal sense, is it? It's, it's just a, a kind of alternative to a Les Paul. Yeah, it's got very very skinny neck on it, and uh, it's got core splits as well. So you've got a uh, sort of advanced switching there, which is handy. Um, they have some cool features on the the Hagstroms, don't they? They have the um, like the resonator fretboard. Yeah, they were they're quite ahead of the curve with the sort of um, composite wood fretboards, which is obviously very important now in an age of CITES. And they use that H-shaped truss rod to get the neck. H-expander? Really, yeah, the H-expander. <laughs> it's an expander. <laughs> um, yeah, gets you a, a nice skinny, flat neck shape and, yeah, really speedy necks. I think, didn't they used to say they were the fastest necks in the world? Yeah. In, yeah. Depends who's playing them. Yeah, yeah exactly. Cool, Marty Friedman as well. Not long ago with PRS. Yeah, very true. Uh, switched over to Jackson. I think was it Nam last year we saw this model launched. Um, but it's a it's a lovely looking thing, really. A cool uh, bevel on the outside there. Though. Love a bevel. Um, Can't be a bevel. No, I do like the ESP. I do like that. Well, it screams Metallica, mm. really, isn't it? Yeah. It's the most sort of Les Paul customy one, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Probably because it's white. What what the EMGs in that one? That one's got um, eighty one sixty. Oh, so yeah, he- fairly fairly classic. Hetfield started yeah. with that 
like combo before you had well it's, it's before signature you had the signatures. They're kind of based on that, aren't they? The yeah. Because si- a lot of people say EMG actives are not good for clean, but the sixties pretty good clean pickup. Yeah, it's quite rounded. Counts, yeah, rounded sound. Whereas the uh, the eighty one's more aggressive. Mm, Slayer pickup. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, then the PRS SE Tremonti, uh, which is. A great solid guitar. Yeah, a, a reputation for value there. I was playing it only yesterday, and a nice, nice chunky neck on him, and uh, solid uh, whammy action. Of course, that's the the differentiator here. Mark's what? Tremonti. Hey, where, where do you stand on trems on a or vibratos on a on a single cut guitar? It's hard to argue that it looks a bit wrong. But that's only because we're so used to just seeing a Les Paul. I mean, the early Les Pauls came with some of them came with vibrolas, didn't they? Like the old Gibson tailpiece. Did think, I just imagine that, no. or am I thinking of SGs? Think how many vintage Les Pauls got ruined in the eighties when everyone was fitting Floyd roses and stuff to their guitars. It's, I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to know the best example whether there is a '59 that's just been rooted out. Every Floyd rose has its thorn. Very good. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Of course, Alex Lifeson, big. Uh, Big fan of the old uh, Les Paul Access. Yes, I don't know what. I just as is threw um, that in, non sequitur. As is Scott Gorham, I believe. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Who who moved from Strats to Les Pauls, and it's kind of like a, a between point for him, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose Les it's Paul a kind Access. of halfway house, isn't it? Yeah. Controversial for many, loved by the few. <laughs> <laughs> we should just say as well that with the group test, it's. We, we, we pick four guitars and we, we kind of play them against each other, if you like. But it's not about finding the one best guitar that, that beats all the others, is it? Mm. We, we we try and guide the readers down, kind well, of, from, depending on what you're into, this one's going to work best for you. Yeah, it, yeah well, exactly. You can't just pick, like, out of four And, and that, that isn't... Some people will think, oh, you're sitting on the fence. Well, it's, having done these kind of reviews myself, I find it's often really surprising how much variation there is between the four. You get four based on a theme, you think, well, they're, they're going to be similar. And they're yeah. really not. I mean, I remember doing a T-style um, test, and it was just, I was staggered by how different each guitar was. Just just tonally voiced so differently. But they on on the surface, they look similar, like yeah. visually, certainly. So, as yeah, and as you say, that's what said, that's why we have different awards for different categories because not every player wants the same thing out of a guitar. They might like the look of a single cut, but they might be a different kind of player. Some mm. might want more of a metal, some more of a classic rock, maybe maybe blues. Yeah. So if you're looking for a Les Paul alternative, check that out and uh, let us know how you get on. <laughs> <laughs> Answers on the postcard. So Mike, what do we have in the effects section this month? Well, it's sort of branded soundscaping reverbs. Cool. So we're talking we're talking long trails, big mixes, and uh, something a little bit different. Uh, so these are all sort of tailored to that task. Um, so we've got the Earthquaker Devices Transmitter, uh, Caroline Meteor and Meteor. I don't know. It's got two accents on it. It's it's proving challenging. I can barely carry one accent. Uh, Wampler Ethereal, which is a kind of delay uh, delay and reverb combined. And the Ranger Effects Reverb X, which is a more of a sort of distorted reverb for sample-type okay. sounds. Um, so they all provide a, a variation on a theme. And again, we sort of you know lead the reader 
down their sort of path to what might suit them best. Mm. So these are kind of boutique effects, really? Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, it's a huge market, but this this is the kind of... I feel this is the more exciting area as opposed to sort of overdrives and distortions mm. where, I mean, the lines are very blurred. These are four very distinct pedals, even when they're based on the same sort of architecture, whether that's analog or digital, I feel like delays of reverbs yeah. always have quite a big difference. Between Do them. you guys use reverb? I, I've, I, I use a Holy Grail. Um, I, I kind of just use it all the time, actually, just as a re- I have reverb on a lot, but mm. I don't use it in what I would call a kind of ethereal way. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of associate these kind of pedals with post-rock genre. It, yeah, am yeah. I being a little bit short-sighted there? Is It It seems like re- the reverb market's gone crazy now. So obviously more and more players are buying reverbs. Yeah, I think it is. this is an example of technology I think is shaping um, the sort of genres that come out of it, whereas before you would have had um, reverb units as like rack units, basically, mm. which would have been expensive, required a whole new setup to em- employ. Now you've got these things in digital pedals on the floor. Um, it totally changes everything, really, from sort of shoegaze onwards. It felt like Strymon kind of spurred the market a bit with the... The, the blue the, sky. Blue sky, and, yeah. And the big sky. And things, I don't know if that signalled a, a wave of interest in reverb and competition or do you think things were moving that way before that uh i I think that's certainly yeah livened up the market yeah very popular pedals that we see on a lot of rig tours yeah strymon they're really uh dominating the boards these Mm. days treading but it's also it offers people the the kind of sound that they would get from a plug-in when they're recording something yeah in like logic or whatever Mm. they're using and it gives them that actually in a pedal on the floor Mm. doesn't it so it's kind of bringing that stuff out of a computer or out of a rack and kind of making it easier for people to use. Another thing people do with these sort of massive trails and stuff live is they, they'll stick it on at the end of a, a song or something to avoid having to make conversation with the crowd. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good idea. You do, you do see it yeah. a lot, actually. Stu, you re- reviewed uh, com- the Rhodes Complete Studio Kit for, I did. for this issue. And we actually, uh, I was involved with the kind of testing process with your help yes reviewed it yeah in this very room where we're recording right now actually yeah um yeah so it's not we don't look at loads of recording gear in the mag because it's not something that everybody always wants to do but i think it is something that people maybe don't always realize how easy it can be to do so um you know if you've got a computer all you need is this this kit's got everything you need in there it's got the interface it's got the uh the condenser mic there pop shield. comes with a pop shield if mm. you're a vocalist. And it's, um, it's 339. Rodar, they've got a great reputation for good reasons because they put out great products. They have, um, yeah. And the mic that you get with it is the Rode NT1A, which started life a couple of decades ago as the Rode NT1. And I think ever since they brought it out, it's been the, how do they describe it? It's like the, the lowest, they call it the quietest mic on the market, or it was one of the quietest mics on the market. Meaning by that, not that it doesn't output very much sound, but it's got the lowest kind of self-noise. So if you're recording at home, the microphone's not imparting any real noise onto your recording. So you're minimising the amount of buzz and background kind of hiss and stuff like that. And it's been, you know, it's a a staple kind of thing um, for entry-level microphones. It has been for like the last couple of decades. But the whole kit is is great. I mean, you were here when we took it out of the box and recorded, and the, the interface really... Weighty, it's not very big, but it 
you kind of feel like you're getting something quality. Even just having the pop shield with it really is, and the, the shock mount to kind yeah. of put it in. You know, a lot of budget mics don't come with uh, like the proper holder, things like that. So, yeah, you have to buy them. Um, while it, you know, £339 is you know, still a lot of money, it's not, if, if you're thinking, well, I want to get into recording at home, or I can go and book a day or two in a studio somewhere. Yeah. You know, like give a man a fish. Yeah. Give a man, <laughs> give a man a fishman. And and we we decided to test it by uh, recording a quite a simple uh, track of uh, track of acoustic guitar, a finger picked acoustic, and then I I recorded my vocals, and uh, it was it was great. It was it was it was very easy to use. Obviously, it's quite yeah, it was. Style. I mean, we like the room we're in now is um, just a kind of a standard room with no treatment in it or anything. There's kind of weird clothes racks in the corner. Um, and yeah, it just, you know, that we didn't have to do anything to the yeah. room to make it sound good. It's just a case of knowing where you're going to put the mic and just, you know, experimenting a little bit and just kind of shows that you don't have to spend loads and loads of money. It's if you, if you can just kind of take the time to work with what you've got, learn to use it, then yeah. you can get great results. We're, we're actually considering entering the song into Eurovision. We were so proud of it. Eurovision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we've probably got nil poir. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the, the the studio kit scores higher than that, so certainly. You'll have to read the mag to it find does. out how high. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, for anyone that's, that's thinking of getting into recording, then, you know, there's a, there are there are a few other... Companies doing similar things with kind of complete packages. I think the only thing you'd need to buy there is like a mic stand. But, mm. you know, the Rode one is, is really good. There are other other brands that, are, that make kind of similar things. Um, but it's yeah. a name that is, is trusted, so it's cool. So moving on to the artists in the mag, I suppose that that's my, my job to talk through that. And uh, the most logical link is to talk about Rig Tour. And we have got an awesome player this month, Steve Morse of Dixie Dregs, Flying Colours, and most famously, Deep Purple. And uh, that's that's the tour we caught up with him on um, when Deep Purple played in Cardiff. I went down there and he is a really lovely guy. Um, I'd heard he was he was a really nice chap and he, and he totally lived up to that. He was really hospitable to us and he talked us through his rig and he's... He's really got quite an unusual approach to gear. He's very hands-on with design. He's got a very unusual range of signature models. And we also saw a prototype for his forthcoming 30th anniversary, is it? Um, model? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he had his 20th anniversary, the Y20, and his original number one um, signature model too. And uh, you can read all about that in, in the new issue, but we also talk to him about his how his approach to being so hands-on with gear started and we're going to hear some of that now you've always been very hands-on with gear um kind of modifying it things like that oh yeah that's yeah and yeah hammer and chisel I'd, i had no fear because i when i was a kid i learned that electric guitars are pieces of wood and you know a fender was screwed together just like this and the pickups kind of 
were the magical part. You know, I had to understand electricity to know more about them. But once you do, um, there's lots of things you can customize. And just, just like a kid putting, I don't know if you did this in England, but uh, putting uh, trading cards into where their spokes of their tire, of their, of their wheel would make yeah. noise. Yeah. It was just like that to me. Yeah. You know, just let, let's, let's dive in and see what we can do to make it sound different. And uh, I, with, I started with the 67 Strat. And back then, in 67 and 68, that was not anything unusual. It was just unusual for a kid to have a nice guitar. And I borrowed the money for it. So I kind of dug into my uh, very nice new guitar shortly after discovering I couldn't get any sound from it. I couldn't get the sounds I heard on the records. What? Chuck Berry, he played humbuckings. Yeah. Hendrix did play a Strat, but he played it with distortion. So I started using overdrives from a tape machine and uh, a second amplifier as, okay. as a preamp right. to, to get overdrive. And finally arrived at the closest approximation I got to getting the sounds I heard in record was having a Vox amplifier that had middle range boost. Right, okay. That was a revelation because middle range boost had a switch. So you could go from sounding like a Strat to sounding like, you know, you had some more, well, closer closer sounding to a humbug. Yeah. But I wanted to be able to, to do it all. And uh, my Vox amps were hard to keep working. For some reason, I blew the speakers. <laughs> and the, maybe the repair places in, in my town in Georgia didn't understand the... Uh, intricacies of reconing the speakers and rewiring the amps so uh did when did you find that during your experiments with telly that you found that you needed four pickups to get to cover what you wanted to cover playing through uh the ampeg b4 which also had a variable mid-range mm -hmm. i i like that a lot but just fine in the course of doing our rigid material i i wanted a clean sound here something I could finger pick here, something that sounded a little bit country, like Southern rock here, and classic humbucking, and maybe some classic single core. I wanted all these sounds available to me, and the uh, there was no guitar back then that, that would do it. Then Fender came out with a humbucking. The Fender humbucking was a huge thing, so that's why on my, my Franken-Telly, the, the first thing I did was just carve out a big hole with a hammer and chisel and put that thing in there. And it sounded pretty good, but it was feeding back. Like it, it would feed back almost like a telly pickup. Right. You know, with, with, at high volumes. And I couldn't figure that out. And I happened to get some more input from uh, Steve Blucher at, and Larry DiMarzio when we played up in New York. He gave me some pickups to try and actually took my humbucking and uh, well he tried to fix it from feeding back uh, and then said you know what we have winding machine we can make the similar sound to this but with our equipment so it won't feed back and uh, that was the beginning of my you know custom pickups okay and a big part of 
these guitars that makes the sound is the spacing. Okay. The the neck pickup has to be where it is. Right. In fact, if you took two of the same exact pickups and space them here, you would hear a similar sound, a similar difference between them, because the the, the positioning is so much more important than almost anything else. I think. Okay. On the pickup. That's why my guitars don't have 24 frets. If they did, this pickup would be inside a little bit and it would sound so much more typical. Right. And have that generic sort of uh, uh, high-endy neck pickup sound. Okay, right. Which uh, I, I like the warmth that it has here. And yeah. when the two pickups are blended together, there's no phase distortion. They, they sound very clear and uh, it's it's just the perfect space, in my opinion. Yeah. This is all in my opinion. I, you know, everyone finds a way to make their rig have a, the sweet spot that they base their uh, playing around. So that was Deep Purple's Steve Morse there talking about his early experiments with modifying gear and how that led to such an unusual Ernie Ball signature model. Steve also had his signature angle head signature 100 and uh, one of the interesting things about that amp is how detailed the the mids are on it and how how he can shape those and he talks a bit about that in the in the rig tour why why mids matter and it and really you can't highlight that enough it, nope. for many people the mid the guitar is a mid instrument and i think would you say one of the keys to a great, especially a great live sound, at operating with drums within drums and and bass, is to to really focus in on how to get a great sound in the mids. In terms of frequency, a lot of it comes from when you're playing live and wanting to cut through, and it's kind of two things, isn't it? Like you're you're trying to keep out of the way of the frequencies that the bass is covering. Mm. Um, and then you're also trying to cut through a wall of drums and cymbals and stuff like that. And the whole kind of scooped mid-range mid thing that was really popular, and is really popular when you're playing at home, and it does sound nice at low volumes, to, especially with a lot of gain. Yeah, you, take, you take the mids out, and your playing becomes tidier. Mm. It hides a lot of mistakes. You're not getting all it's these generous, kind of yeah. weird noise off the strings and stuff. But the moment you step into a room with other musicians... You're just gone. You're disappeared. disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm kind of getting to is how can a player, what what should a player be focusing on to, to kind of enhance and to head towards a, a more mid-focused sound? I mean, it doesn't have to be a, a mid-boosted sound, mm. but you'd certainly need to employ more mids live than you would yeah. at home. Uh, so knocking that dial up a little bit back yeah, to, the, um, back to yeah. halfway will usually... Uh, give you enough and then for solos I mean the old slash trick of a, a graphic equaliser on the floor mm. with uh, the mids boosted uh, I don't I, he probably has someone boosting the volume out front doesn't he but um, just to give your amp that push that extra mid or Tube Screamer of course is the, the go to for most metal guys Yeah, uh, whether it's on all the time or uh, just, just for solos either, just, yeah. everyone keep, well keep. yeah true <laughs> that but uh, I'm taking scoops Keeping the gain down uh, under what you would instinctively go for. They interact. Gain they? is more of a percussive. The, the thing mm. is, with when you're when you're adding EQ, you're adding gain. Yeah, it's yeah. just a, a certain frequency. Mm. So, 
I think that's one thing is if you're going to turn your mid up, it's going to interact a little bit with the amount of gain mm. that you've already put on. And they, they're not, you know, they're not kind of independent of each other. They, you will probably have to evaluate your gain settings as you yeah. kind of start cranking your EQ and making cuts and stuff like that. And I think mids do sound harsher with high, well, every frequency sounds a bit harsher with higher gain. So if you're finding you have, you're turning a bit brash, knock back the gain a bit and uh, work harder. <laughs> Just using your ears, I think, as well, isn't it? And Yeah. You know, like if you can especially when you're playing live, if you can get out in front of the band a little bit yeah. during a sound check and just listen to things and get a feel for, for how it changes when you're... If you're not used to having those certain frequencies cranked, it might take a little bit of getting comfortable with and, um, you know, realising when you when you pick in a certain way, you're adding noise or not and just kind of... We, we kind of... Players will focus on all the details, the effects... But one of the things that I found playing live is the fundamental challenge is being heard and hearing myself. And it all has to come from that. And without that, there's no point having all these great reverbs and things like that. So, and I think the mid, attention to the mids and cutting through in the right way is kind of the key to that. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely something that we've seen in the mag over the last, I don't know, like three or four, five years is lots of players even kind of guys that you might expect to use more of a scooped kind of sound everybody is is kind of realizing this fact that it's like it's all about the mid-range and mm. you know mm. guitar is a mid-range instrument and especially with like a lot of lower tuned stuff now and kind of extended range guitars and stuff where things are crossing over more with bass guitars yeah. and you know when you get down to those real low kind of registers they've got to stay out of each other's way yeah otherwise it's just a big mush of mm noise yeah and that's one of the that even applies to acoustics as well that that smaller bodied acoustics which have more of a mid-range focus will actually cut through better Mm. for recording and live Mm. Uh, one thing i found is some of the bigger dreadnoughts can be a bit boomy live a bit a bit especially if you're finger picking yeah 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 and and the this like even a small gs mini will be much louder and more pronounced on on a on a record so I think it applies across electric and acoustic, these kind of lessons. Moving on to other artists we've got in the mag, we've got Five Minutes Alone with Ishan, who is, um, who's got a new solo album out and obviously former, formerly of Emperor, the black metal band. We've got Me and My Guitar with Andy Ghosh from Turbo Wolf talking about uh, the studio version of the Firebird, which is a fairly obscure model, I'd say. It's and it's rare, isn't it? Yeah, white, and it's a little bit different to the to the usual Firebirds, and and he explains why and why it appeals to him. Uh, we've got a backtrack giving you a, a kind of beginner's guide to the awesome talent that is Paul Gilbert, because he's got such an amazing back catalogue. It's hard to know where to start, and that that's really what backtracks all about. We've had um, backtracks with everyone from the Rolling Stones to Tom Waits, and it really gives you a guide to what we think you should be listening to from a guitar perspective. It might not always be the albums that that are regarded as the, the obvious choices. Sometimes we, we, we choose something a little bit different, but it's always from a guitar perspective. I think that the idea is really that if you keep hearing these names over and over again and you kind mm. of 
you know, like trying to get you know, trying to get into them, and you're not sure where to start. This this can work as your guide to kind yeah. of hold your hand through getting into like these really big names that can sometimes feel a little bit impenetrable with with when they've when they've had such prolific careers. So yeah, um, I mean, it's cool. You know, it, it's like a good guide to any. Um, what about you guys? Any artists that you discovered later? Like you feel like you've kind of got got into later in life where you were like, I don't know where to start. I mean, for me, Springsteen is probably one that I, I, I got into later on. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Uh, Rush and Yes, probably yeah. for me. Delving into the prog roots. Mm. Um, there's, there's quite a daunting back catalogue yeah. for both of those guys. So. Talking to Stu about Rush, actually, I only became like a Rush, a prop. I always admired them. But I only really mm. became a Rush fan when I saw them live and they just blew me away well they've stopped touring now so thanks for that yeah sorry man I guess I'll never be a Rush fan <laughs> if that's the case Chris but anyone, anyone oh, for I you? can't think off the top of my head I always think of Block Party when I ask that question because I really liked their fourth album but that's oh, all right, yeah. Yeah, um, that's so which is the was, fourth one um, is it Called Octopus, or is that? The oh, it's that got Octopus on it. That yeah, is a really good. That's, oh, it's called. It's called is it called Four? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's called no, that, that is a good. That's a great. It's album, a great actually. album. I always really good guitar. Album. With a weird delay, stuttery. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I love the whole everybody album. talks about Silent Alarm, and they're, they're touring that this year, aren't they? I think. Mm, yeah, yeah the anniversary. I, I always say I was late to the party. Oh, did you set that up just to use that? Possibly. Oh, fair enough. But at least I didn't have a mental block. They haven't got a massive back catalogue, but for me, it's kind of stone roses i guess like they're a band that i just couldn't i never liked couldn't get into yeah but as i've got older and approached middle age i'm uh, <laughs> yeah I've, I've really warmed to it a lot more i'd say quite I'm, a lot of that scene for me just appreciating it more for the for the songs and kind of seeing past mm. the you know the the initial the buzz happy mondays i couldn't stand happy mondays first time around you know sean sean rose voice was too grating for me but in later life quite enjoy listening to Mm. Mm. radio radiohead a band that i loved growing up absolutely loved but i i think they kind of lost me after kid a a bit but now in recent years i've gone back and it and it's clicked Mm. i I really i I couldn't accept that they'd moved away from being a traditional guitar band because i love the bends and I still, I still do, but now I can, I can, and they, and they have been a guitar driven band. In Rainbows is quite, a, yeah, yeah. Well, Now, now I, I realise Rainbows album. is one of the yeah. best albums they ever put out. So, yeah, they're they're a band that I would admit that I, I kind of they lost me for a little while, but now I've I really appreciate what they've done. The thing is, when there's people like that that are real kind of proper innovators and doing things ahead of time, like sometimes it just needs a while to to sink in and catch up, doesn't mm. it? And like. Yeah, like you say, you let it sit for a bit and then come back to it, and yeah, in a different sort of context, it yeah makes a makes a big yeah. I mean, there there can be albums that you didn't appreciate when they came out, and I'm I'm afraid to say that Metallica's Load hasn't hasn't been one of those albums for me. I like it more than I did, (laughs) and some anger. No, it's still (laughs) still still not happening for me that that album. But um, yeah, some things you need to be in the right space and time to appreciate. So moving on, we we had him on the the first episode of the podcast, and that's Billy Howardell of um, a Perfect Circle, who is an incredibly original player. I don't think he he gets appreciated for how original he is. He's kind of a what I would describe as a producer player, 
where it's hard to define Separate the diff- yeah. Two. yeah yeah but the interesting thing about the new perfect circle album meet the elephant is they brought in dave sardi as a producer so billy's role changed a bit and he talks about that in this feature and also about where his mindset as a player comes from he he's a player who leaves a lot of space in his music and it's it's really interesting he's got a very different mindset and he's a lot less reliant on digital effects than some than I presumed I think he's a lot more old school um even though he uses axe effects live uh, for recording it's a very different story so he talks about that and also the 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 really interesting story behind his number one Les Paul which originally belonged to Trent Reznor uh, he talks a bit in episode one about his work as a guitar tech and he was a guitar tech for Nine Inch Nails I think on the Downward Spiral tour it was when they were destroying a lot I of Les Pauls yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's an amazing story in there about how much money that ran into uh, um, and just he's, how he's, many guitars they yeah, went through as well on that, on yeah. that tour and it's still his number one guitar um, the tonal voice of the Les Pauls he uses are a little bit different because of the Tom Anderson pickups that he's he's used for years as well but I think it's really cool that he's stuck with the same guitar I love that that when a player is loyal to a guitar and it's like it's part of their history yeah and they're still they're still still using it for mm-hmm. he uses it in the studio as his main guitar and like he mentions in the right. interview, doesn't he, that he needs to get it refretted, but he's really yeah. afraid to have anything done to it because it's <laughs> yeah. just not going to come back the same. And um, I can understand. We can all relate to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've also got some uh, some lessons in there at the end of the feature as well, showing you um, kind of how to cop a little bit of Billy's style and mm. play in his way because he is, you know, he's, he's quite different as a player, kind of different. To well, I think some of the um, some of the prog staples are are particularly evident particularly in our lessons certainly so we've got um they're all in, in a drop tuning c sharp standard tuning so perhaps you know not a big surprise we're looking at wide interval arpeggios as well which is quite a big those are real finger stuff. twisters those yeah one or two of them um and certainly an interesting way of playing um i think it's something you'll hear in is it the outsider i'm not big i don't know perfect circle very well but i think i think it's, it's kind of technique that's in that uh, in that riff um, yes, yeah, so there's quite a bit to learn there. Um, few, few extended chords um, in there too. Um, although we're not really looking at the chords themselves as much as how how the how the arpeggios and such and, and such um, imply some fairly yeah. sophisticated harmony. Mm. And in there. they all have audio examples on the CD as well. Those, as, those as lessons, with, yeah. yeah, as with all our tab, yeah. all the tabs and all, audio all on the, the disc for you. To all the classic to. tracks, learn yeah. to play tracks have got all pro the, audio on the, on the disc to jam along to. Yeah. So Billy's a player who's years into a career with an established band who are playing arenas and uh, big festival slots. But Total Guitar is also about championing upcoming talent. And uh, that's the focus of our round table with two of our favourite alternative rock bands at the moment, which, which are Milk Teeth and Fan Club. And they were touring together recently and I went to Bristol to meet them. And sat down with them to really focus in on the the challenges facing the guitar young guitar bands today, what they would like to see change with with how other bands help bigger bands help younger bands, and also how radio supports bands. And it was it's really interesting to hear the perspective of of, of young players who are out there doing it. And uh, we sat down with 
Stephen King, who is not the author Stephen King, who is the front man and guitarist for Fan Club, and Kevin Keane, who is also the bass player for Fan Club, and the trio from Milk Teeth, which is Chris Webb, guitarist, Billy Hutton, who is vocals and guitar, and Becky Blomfield, who is the the singer and bassist from Milk Teeth. And uh, the clip you're about to hear is them kind of discussing the 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 challenges that the guitar brands face in, in terms of getting their names out there and, and what, what they would like to see change. Do you think there's still an appetite for, for guitar-driven music? Do you think in some ways nothing's changed? I think so. I think I'm like, I keep talking about the internet, but I think like... Obsessed. Yeah, <laughs> I think it does help. Like, I see a lot of maybe younger than I was before I was really into music people like wanting to come to shows. You've got quite a varying age of fan base. And I think that's, I mean, we had, we've seen like people, dads and children come to shows together because they both like it, which is, yeah, which is awesome. That's like, it. Yeah, you have um, like, you know, for example, like the kid who's coming to the show who's just kind of fan Nirvana or something. And then you have the dad of the kid who saw Nirvana. Or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have like both those generations there, and it's a really, really cool crossover to have. Yeah. Like in Ireland, the rock scene was never like huge, huge, but yeah. when we're doing shows now in Ireland, like we can sell out shows, and that that really never happened in Ireland before. It was kind of yeah. like you had to be like a celebrity type band in Ireland to really do good shows and stuff. And I mean, maybe it's the same here. We've only played there once as yeah. well, and I feel like. We all, people always say to us, oh, come to Ireland tonight. Yeah, yeah. We don't, you know. Yeah. It is tougher, I think, on Ireland because a lot of the venues are over 18s. Yeah, there's no, 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 no 16, like 14 okay. shows, but yeah. it's a lot harder in Ireland just because like, there's a lot of young fans there. You can't just actually see it. Yeah. Yeah. Over 18 shows change, always yeah. seems so stupid yeah. to me. I mean, I, I get, know, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. It happened in America because there was a 21 plus show and a guy came to one of the ones that wasn't, I think. Yeah. And then he was like begging us. He was like, I really want to come to this other show. Can you put me on the guest list or something? And I was like, well, yes, we're, like, we'll do we it. We don't know anybody else. Yeah, like, yeah, trying to get in. He did. I mean, we, first time played America, our drummer wasn't 21. Yeah. <laughs> so, there was one venue where he wasn't allowed outside for a cigarette or anything. Mm -hmm. no. They're like, you have to stay outside. It's so funny. Yeah. What would you like to see change that could help not just your bands, but future generations? I think like radio is a big like mm. all the mainstream radios get behind a few maybe like Royal Blood blown up and I hear them every day mm. but it's like why not why are you just having this one rock band it's almost like a gimmick like hey look rock yeah. music here you are yeah yeah, yeah, cool. yeah. Rock band. on yeah. like daytime radio completely like yeah. it's yeah. almost become a niche like you've got like the Daniel Picardio and stuff on like Radio 1 which is the mainstream but even that's, that's at like 9 o'clock well, yeah. no 7 o'clock at night yeah. or whatever on a Sunday it's not necessarily like easy access. yeah so yeah it's not mid of the day on um, sort of I don't think it's going to frighten anybody it's not like mm. it's not it's my nan's music yeah, it's, it's not like that anymore is it like uh, yeah I think I think they used to play a bigger variety yeah yeah, instead of thinking Coldplay the hardest band they put on. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, just... yeah, we have a lot of our songs that are just they're pop songs, just in, in essence with just heavy guitar or something. Yeah, so yeah. I don't see why they couldn't be played maybe more on mainstream radio. Yeah, yeah. they really just listen. We always big melodies like yeah. We always try to write to a pop format, and I feel like yeah. people. We, I see people singing our songs just from like soundcheck and stuff, and I'm like, yeah. well, you know. Yeah. 
it's not scary. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's, I think there's one song we've got one swear word in. Yeah. But the PG radio band. stations only seem to play rock bands that are doing like For, arenas. There doesn't seem to be, and then they wonder why. Oh, like why are small venues shutting down? And it's like well, you're not supporting no rock- that cluster of the the growth period. You're just only playing the stuff that's on the top, yeah. like selling out twenty yeah, thousand yeah, yeah. people. If the bottom bit gets ignored, how's it supposed to keep passing uh, down yeah. generations? I mean, Foo Fighters ain't gonna last forever. Like, you can't yeah. just play them. So that was the guitarists and bassists of Milk Teeth and Fan Club there talking about some of the realities of, of, of their experiences being young guitar-driven bands uh, trying to make a name for themselves. Uh, one of the other things in the piece that, that's really interesting is that although a lot of things have changed in the industry, they, they both said that playing live is still the way you have to get your name out there. There isn't a, there isn't a shortcut. Well, there isn't for a lot of bands, a few, a few exceptions that it's going to involve playing to sometimes 10 people in a room and you have to keep pushing through that. And I thought that was, it was almost refreshing to hear that in a way because... It's not it, just us. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it proves that some things don't change and it is down to the, the bare essentials of are your songs good and can you deliver them live? For, for guitar-driven bands anyway. Mm. But there is there is some news about what they were talking about, the lack of radio support for, for new, yeah, for new since, bands. Since you did that interview, mm. and um, Radio 1 have actually been told by Ofcom that they have to play more new music, because I think, I'm not sure, because I'm not really Radio 1's demographic, but yeah, a lot of it's kind of dominated by, um, you know, they play like, big name tracks and not a lot else. And um, yeah, so half of their their programming now in the daytime has to come from new music, basically. Not necessarily guitar music, yeah. sadly, but you know, that, there's hope, I think. <laughs> Looking ahead to the next issue of the mag, we've got two very exciting amps. And we, we were at NAM in, in January, the NAM show in Anaheim. And... I think, well, I felt that amps were really the most exciting things we we saw there. Yeah, certainly. Or heard there. Yeah, certainly. I mean, in the mid mid price point, there's a a lot to be excited about, mm. and uh, probably the two we are most excited about have just landed in uh, TG Towers and causing a stir. A, a hell of a stir. Heads turned. Yeah, I mean, uh, so it's the it's the PR. <laughs> so put you out your misery. It's the PRS uh, MT15, the Mark Tremonti signature head, uh, and the uh, Marshall uh, Origin. 20 head uh very different amps mm. but uh offering uh, a lot of tone for the uh the buck mm-hmm. um how many bucks are they i mean they're, they're both around 500 pounds well, at the nam show we were lucky enough to to see mark play this amp and it, it actually told us about it in an interview uh, i don't know 18 months yeah. before mm. yeah. and i I've got to admit, when he when he described what he was planning with it and, and the price point, I was although Skeptical. he yeah he knows amps. He's a collect a serious collector of amps, so there, there's no doubt that he knows about what he wanted from the tone. But I I did wonder if they if they could bring in an amp at a, a five hundred pound price point, and we were pretty blown away by. I mean, he was playing it, but yeah. it, it it pretty much nails his sound, doesn't it? 
yeah, it was kind of insane. Um, it's five game stages, so it's, you know, it's kind of like that sort of boutique Bogner kind of distortion sound. Um, but they've crammed so much into this really small sort of lunchbox format, 15 watt uh, head. And I think Mark used it for most of the last hero, the last Alter Bridge. Yes, album, he did, he? yeah. Um, I mean, that's pretty amazing for that's such a hell of an a, endorsement, yeah. I mean, if you see how many amps this guy has, mm, Dumbles. Yeah. He knows tone. He does. Um, I think the cool thing is as well, when you look at the amp, you kind of look at the features that are on it. He's a guy who, I mean, even after we spoke to him, he was kind of off to go and look at some victory amps or something, yeah. wasn't he? And, yeah, he's, um, he's a fan but of, he, of amps. You know, he, he's clearly looked at a lot of other amps and picked his favourite things mm. from various kind of areas and, you know, put them all together to make what he would want yeah. to see in an amp from this kind of price Let, let's hear it Mike Mike demoed the amp just yesterday just yesterday yeah um, I was I was playing uh, the as I mentioned earlier the PRS uh, SE Tremonti uh, through it which seemed appropriate it did um, so let's we'll, we'll hear a bit of the uh, the dirty sound uh, followed up by some some of the cleans <laughs> Well, as you can hear there, it's a beast, but <laughs> <laughs> the the cleans, yeah, it's got the versatility. It's yeah, it's kind of Mark's always been a big Fender Twin man, and uh, this has got that sort of high headroom, clean, clean, clean mm. format. Um, it's got cool lights as well, LEDs. That was the thing I like most about it. I'm ashamed to say, yeah. very shallow that I am. <laughs> it's cool though. It is blue. The light, the amp is blue when it's clean, and then it switches to red when you put the dirty channel on. It's like a kind of riff warning. Yeah. <laughs> Guitarists like shiny things. We're like magpie creatures. Yeah. Speaking of shiny things, there was another exciting new amp that also impressed us at NAM. Marshall's big comeback, really big comeback product. Would you say the Origin series? Certainly in TG's world, it's yeah, it's kind of what we've. Wanted to see from them for quite a while, I'd say probably it's yeah it's you know it's great. Marshall been a bit quiet over the last little while, you know, it's, with with amp launches, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's not seen sort of lots of new stuff from them, but yeah, they've been sitting away in Bletchley cracking the code, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and this is what they've come back with. So Origin, um, you want to talk us through it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> let me ex- let me ex- different <laughs> proposition from the Chamonti, isn't it? Yeah, very different. It's it's sort of designed to be a, a clean, uh, pushing, a little bit of dirt, kind of ACDC um, territory. Um, JTM, JMP, 
plexi Kind of vintage Marshall. Exactly, yeah. So not the kind of JCM that I think people sort of see when they see Marshall these days. But then they brought back the DSL series as well. Yeah, that's that's right. Revamped the DSL series for that. So they've got their high gain thing covered there. I heard the term takes pedals that I kind of don't like that term but um, it's it's kind of a pedal friendly amp in a lot of yeah. ways isn't it it's designed to be a pedal platform mm. um, you've got a little bit of gain as I said before you've got a pull boost on there to give a bit more um, and they've also changed you remember the old sort of four inputs on the old Marshalls you jump cables to get different levels of brightness change that into a tilt control which is pretty nifty so uh, yeah just the one lead required and it's got a DI out which I always appreciate Every time you DI. Yeah. I'll DI another day, as we've so used a few times bef- before. Before we hear it, the range is combos and heads. Yep. And and what are we demoing here? This is the this is the 20 watt head, which I think will be very popular for a lot of players, okay. which is switchable um, right. down to lower uh, wattages as well. Okay. Let's hear it. Yeah, I'll show you a little bit of the, the dirtier sounds and then some of the cleans as well. So that was the new Marshall Origin Series amp, and uh, that's the end of the show for the for this month. Uh, I would like to thank you for listening, and we'll be back again in a month's time with uh, all the details on the new issue and some more great artists and uh, gear too. As usual, if you uh, like what you're hearing, then feel free to log on to um, iTunes and leave us a kind review um, so that more people can find this podcast. Um, yeah, let us know the, the parts you like, the parts you dislike. Any uh, questions you might have yeah. that you'd like us to help try and answer. Things you'd like to see featured in future episodes. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again next time. Bye. Bye.